Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Dom. How's it going? Dumpster fires where you are? Dumpster fires everywhere. (laughs) Everything is stupidly depressing, and we can leave it at that. Today, we are talking with Adam Winkler. He's a law professor at UCLA and wrote the book, We the Corporations, which tells the bright narrative of how corporations became people with their own set of civil rights under U.S. law. It's a long history. Before we had constitutions, we had bills of rights for corporations. Which in some ways actually inspired our constitution, which in some ways set the stage for why corporations have so many rights today. It's a, it's a twisted history full of weird legal shenanigans and also, uh, let's say, colorful cast of characters who helped bend the arc of the uh, corporate universe to where it is today. Two things worth noting is that we recorded the interview on January 6th, and I believe as we were recording it, Capitol Police was still working to scrape off those deadbeat Vikings from the statuary hall. So you might be able to tell by our moods that we were rather uh, distracted. Yeah, I think we were doom scrolling up to the minute we <laughs> spoke with Professor Winkler and then went right back to it right after. And since then, there were a few developments that put into focus just how dominant corporations are in American public life, for better or for worse. And I just wish we had the chance to ask him a little bit about this. For instance, just the day after, we saw corporations boycotting Republican lawmakers. Mm -hmm. We saw a coalition of big tech companies banning uh, Parler or Parler or whatever. Mm. We even saw Amazon vanish this app from its servers. So this should be the opening of a lot of conversations about the role of corporations in civic life and politics, which should be conducted earnestly. But what we're seeing instead is those bizarre role reversals. On the left, we see people who for the past 10 years, if not longer, have been militant against the political influence of corporations. People who were galvanized in in 2010 by Citizens United, the, the case that actually brought Winkler to write his book. And, and back then, we're saying corporations do not have free speech, that the state should be responsible for curtailing the political involvement of corporations. Some of the same people are suddenly cheering those corporations as a freaking bulwark against politics that they don't like. And from the other side, from the right, people who were applauding Citizens United, people who were boosting the masterpiece cake shop ruling that that said that basically a company can refuse service if it violates its First Amendment. Suddenly, they're really outraged by corporations having a say in the public sphere. I mean, this is an important discussion to have. This is an important public debate that needs to be figured out. The different rights that are being contested here need to be weighed and balanced with a serious, responsible view to the future and how we're going to run ourselves as a small, liberal society. But the people who are having it are just time and time again showing us that they are lacking any principle and are just tribal hypocrites. And I am so sick of it. And I woke up on the right side of the bed this morning, clearly. I will say that we are uh, expected to have a few conversations that will hopefully get into some of this in the future. Um, we already have some of them set up, so it should be interesting. If you haven't already, please follow us. That would be nice. Also, share with your friends. It really helps a lot to us tiny indie podcasters. And with this note of corporate optimism slash dystopia slash whatever... 
depending on your tribe. Our conversation with Adam Winkler. Adam Winkler, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on. This is quite a surreal day that we were having this conversation on. We're recording this on January 6th, a day which I think is a safe bet to say we'll live in infamy. But we invited you here to talk about your book, We the Corporation. So give us an introduction about yourself, your work, and how you see your field. Well, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, where we are today and sort of how it thinks, how I think about it in terms of my work, most of my work really is about constitutional history. And often that's the a story that's written about great moments or large moments in American history, significant events. Um, and, uh, much of American history that I tell in my books, like We the Corporations, uh, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, um, and Gunfight, uh, my book that I wrote about the Second Amendment, uh, and the history of efforts to balance gun rights and gun control, often you look to those turning points in American history to draw lessons and, uh, and to demarcate different eras. I think what we've seen today, um, uh, and it really looks to be an attempted coup, right? An attempt to storm the Capitol and to take over uh, and to stop uh, the uh, uh, counting of the electors for Donald Trump. It's a day that will live in infamy, uh, to quote uh, FDR. Um, uh, uh, but unlike uh, the original day of infamy when the United States was attacked by outsiders, we have Republicans who've gathered in Washington to try to take over the Capitol um, uh, with tear gas in the Senate chamber and people shot. And this is a day that as a historian, you think, wow, to live through this. Because in a hundred years from now, you know that students of American history, if we are so fortunate to battle back the forces that seem to be trying to overturn our democracy, um, we'll be reading about and, and knowing this is a significant moment in history. Um, uh, uh, and well, it, it's the kind of stain, I think it will be a stain on Donald Trump's presidency and legacy. It's particularly hard to wrap your head around. I mean, I, some of the commentary I've read, I've been listening to today was like, you know, usually in the U S we think of ourselves as a society that, you know, can al allow for things like this, for, for just, just debate and disagreement to take place in places like the court in places like the floor of the Capitol room and for it to be so um, upended, this kind of normal process is, is it seems to me like an affront to our at least more recent history. I don't know if you have a longer lens on this or this is perhaps more, more in our DNA than maybe we realize. Well, you know, I often say that, you know, when bad things happen in American history, I have to remind myself as a student of history myself who's written about American history, you know, American history is not a great uplifting story at all times. And in fact, most of it is about how we have failed to live up to the ideals that were set out uh, in an earlier period in American history and there are new ideals that have been added to the Constitution in the years since that we've consistently failed to live up to them on so many levels. And uh, when you think of a country that had slavery for so long, that fought a civil war where we killed so many people to defend slavery, um, and then uh, afterwards Jim Crow laws, you start thinking uh, that, you know, when some of these bad things happen, this is actually more the American way than we'd like to admit, uh, mm -hmm. that 
that we are not uh, a people that's really uh, exceptional in our uh, respect for institutions and our respect for the uh, for law and order. I mean, it's typified by the fact that this is happening by the political party that calls itself the party of law and order. Um, it's really a, a remarkable. Uh, it's a remarkable moment. Uh, the three things that came to mind hearing you speak is first you said that this is going to be a stain on the Trump presidency which is an entertaining thought given it's not the most pristine legacy as it is the two other points come from this idea of uh, law and order and, and and a nation of laws uh, first there is the this whole history or this whole romantic relationship between American history and civil disobedience and Even let's ignore what's been going on this year. Right? We go back to the civil rights movement and you go back to basically the revolution. And that tension between being a country of laws and being a country where the people, basically the mob, can reclaim the law or lay claim to have a better interpretation of the law is an inherent part of the American narrative. And I don't know about you, uh, but I, this is something that I found always to be insane and fascinating in, in American legal history. In American history, there's, you know, not only uh, there is a large number of important turning events that were examples of mob rule or mobs rising up. Sometimes those mobs uh, were really to do violence. I mean, what was the KKK that arose after the Civil War as an attempt to reestablish white supremacy and to take rights away from the newly freed uh, slaves who were all of a sudden granted rights? Um, and, uh, but th- that was an example of mob rule. Um, blacks in the South faced mob rule all the time. Uh, mob rule defined by sort of um, uh, not state mandated authorities coming in and stirring up trouble, uh, but sort of grassroots uh, groups of people who've suddenly turned to violence. Um, occasionally that kind of thing has you know been about rebellion too, uh, you know, a slave's rebellion that were trying to free themselves and to gain uh, that kind of freedom. And sometimes the civil disobedience has been like we saw in the civil rights protests um, about uh, taking over a space. Uh, currently, what we're seeing is we've seen a lot of um, uh, what's problematic is when it becomes political violence, when it returns from being civil disobedience to you know, taking over the Capitol, storming the Capitol and taking over the Senate building and stopping the lawful mechanisms of democracy. Um, that's uh, a threat to our political order and a threat to our constitutional system uh, um, in a significant way. And so there are different kinds of mobs that, to be worried about. What we've uh, seen today uh, has to be one of, uh, you know, the most uh, deplorable we've seen in American history. I mean, it's definitely horrifying. It definitely brings back images from from mid 20th century Europe makes you think of of the frailest democracies but the thing that's nagging me is I remember the first thing we we learned in constitutional history was about the legitimacy of the mob the idea that a rebellion can have legitimate authority the way that writers in in the British colonies in the 1700s believed that they possessed a more opposite interpretation of the unwritten British Constitution and brought this to bear on how they understood themselves and how they justified their actions 
The British were the illegitimate violators of the spirit of the Constitution, while the rebels were defending it. Now, I'm not remotely suggesting that the people who stormed the Capitol today dressed as Vikings were driven by any kind of legal sophistication. <laughs> But when you have a country that has these contradictions already built into its ethos, and as it grows and the media bifurcates and the, the culture separates, it, it becomes not so shocking to see something like this happen. You suggested that this is a break from, from American tradition or from the American myth. I think this is the American myth in, in the right. minds of some of these people. Well, I think that's a good point. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's hard to, hard to, hard to fight that looking back at American history and, and seeing what we see and how that this is, is a far more commonplace. It is interesting how these kinds of rebellious movements usually frame their complaints in terms of the Constitution, that they have a better yeah. view of the Constitution. Um, that's something that the founders had with regards to the British Constitution. Um, led them to have certain things that were thought to be riots at the time. We celebrate one of them, the Boston Tea Party. Um, uh, uh, that, that kind of, uh, uh, that the Constitution plays a really important role in organizing and mobilizing people in the United States in a real significant way. And it's a, uh, it's, uh, a, a, it's a sign of the role that the Constitution plays in the American psyche and, um, and how important it is for the protection of rights. And that's why I wrote, for instance, about the rights of corporations. Now, corporations didn't win their rights by going into the streets and rioting and protesting and burning to, uh, storming the Capitol. I've never seen Ronald McDonald with a, uh, a protest sign. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, they've used the mechanisms of American democracy, namely the Supreme Court, to gain so many rights, uh, and nearly all the same rights as you and me. Uh, and using those rights to cement and expand corporate power and corporate control over the economy and over society. Ah, elegant segue. And with that, let's get into the book, uh, We the Corporations. Actually, let's start with the ending. I'd guess that a lot of people, including myself, first encountered this idea of corporations as people, of corporate personhood, first from Citizens United, the 2010 Supreme Court decision, and then from Mitt Romney's immortal soundbite, corporations are people, my friend. I think whether you uh, heard this soundbite first from the uh, Washington Post or from The Daily Show, most chances are that you found this statement jarring. But what you show in your book is that this statement, this idea of corporate personhood, not only isn't anathema, but is actually fundamental to the legal history of this country. So explain. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly that notion of corporate personhood has been the center of so many protests uh, since Citizens United, that 2010 Supreme Court case that said the corporations have the same free speech rights as you and me. Um, but the idea of corporate personhood itself, uh, in terms of the law, is actually an old and longstanding principle uh, that actually makes a lot of sense in terms of how we manage and run the economy. Uh, the idea of corporate personhood is to say that Uh, a corporation is a legal entity that's separate and distinct from its owners. So I want to stop you before you get into the nitty-gritty. Let's start simple. Let's break down the terms so we're on the same page. What's a corporation? What are we talking about here? 
Sure. Um, uh, well, when we're talking about a corporation, like I talk about in, in my book, and I'm talking about the, is we're thinking primarily of business corporations. Uh, and, uh, you know, a corporation is uh, a business form, an organizational form that traces back to the uh, earliest days of ancient Rome, actually. Uh, and it allows groups of people to pool their money and carry on a common activity, such as running a business. Uh, and uh, today, the textbook definition of a corporation, if you open up any corporate law 101 book, it's that a corporation is a legal entity. It has a separate and distinct legal identity from its owners. And that means that the corporation, as an entity, can own property, can enter into contracts, and can sue and be sued in its own name. So if you slip and fall at Starbucks, you have to sue the company, Starbucks. You don't sue the individual shareholders who are the, uh, might be considered the owners of the enterprise. Howard Schultz, you don't sue him. You have to sue Starbucks, the corporation. Why is that? Because the corporation is an independent legal person with separate rights and responsibilities under the law. Um, and so that idea of corporate personhood is one that's really longstanding in American law. Um, uh, what's really controversial and is often mistaken to be a question of corporate personhood is just the question of which rights under the Constitution corporations should have, or should they have any rights? And that's really come onto the table because of cases like Citizens United and Hobby Lobby, a case that said that corporations have religious freedom rights, and they use these rights to win basically exemptions from existing laws to say we don't have to follow the law that other people have to. Okay, so now let's dive into the history. You start your book by showing how tied up the history of chartering a corporation is with the earliest forms of an American uh, constitution. In fact, the earliest colonial constitutions were modeled after corporate charters. Well, yeah. I mean, what I found in doing my research uh, on the, sort of the relationship between the corporation and the constitution um, was that the, the corporation actually played uh, a, an important role in with the establishment of the United States, uh, the establishment of the very first colony. We think about uh, the uh, we think about uh, our origin story, an origin myth, as being uh, you know the Pilgrims uh, landing at Plymouth Rock. But of course, uh, there was a colony before that, and that was in Jamestown. It was very much a corporate affair. Um, uh, Jamestown was a project that was named after the king. It wasn't done to fight against the monarchy or to establish individual rights. Uh, it was uh, the result of a trading corporation that sold stock to the public, uh, the Virginia Company of, uh, of London. And, uh, uh, and uh, it was, um, uh, it was uh, uh, basically a commercial venture. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, fact of that corp that was a corporation that's founded that first colony um, actually has important implications because many of the colonies end up being um, uh, uh, end up being corporations founded by corporations. And as corporations, um, corporations typically at the time were very um, organ were very well organized around a charter. And they had to follow what the charter that they had been given by the state legislature required. Because at the time, you weren't allowed just to 
bring together an association of people and form a company, you needed to get a decree from the king or the authorities allowing you to become a corporation for certain specific purposes. For example, Columbus needed to get a charter that allowed him to get a ship and funds and recruit people and go and pillage the new world. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and to form a corporation, to form a legal entity that had its own right to own property, its own right to form contracts, its own right to sue and be sued in its own name, uh, and to sell stock to the public, um, you needed a charter from uh, either the king in England or uh, later on, we would see that would be in early America by the state legislatures, you needed a charter. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, this corporation had a charter and uh, those early corporate, uh, many of the early colonies were organized as corporations and they were organized around written charters that detailed what the responsibilities and rights of office holders were, what the rights of the residents were. Uh, as kind of stockholders, as uh, as uh, stakeholders in the corporation. They were literally the company's bill of rights. Yeah, and basically a bill of rights, like what you might think of where uh, a charter provides, say, stockholders have a right to vote in certain elections. Um, that was part of how those things, those charters worked. And the charters eventually, uh, over the course of the colonial history, morphed into what we uh, recognize now as the early state constitutions, written documents that just like the charters and are often referred to as charters, um, the written documents that set out what were the rights of people and more importantly or equally importantly in a, in a constitution is it organized government power in the same way that a corporate charter organized the corporate management structure, um, uh, so too did these state charters and constitutions uh, organize government um, by recognizing different offices. And in fact, there's a lot of similarities between uh, powers that governors had of colonial corporations that the early governors have today, the right to pardon, the right to uh, control the military forces around of the neighborhood. That was basically the security for the corporations. Um, so uh, a lot of connections there, and in, indeed much of what we think of that, uh, that written constitution, that early, the early roots of American written constitutionalism, really comes from the corporate charters that uh, were um, uh, prevalent among the early colonial corporations. This is something that at least I find very, very interesting, because the constitution generally gets good rep for at least some of its political innovations, and for good reason. It basically established our current idea of a modern liberal democracy. And along with the Federalist Papers, it really did lay a very strong political and legal uh, uh, foundation. But obviously, it did not spring out of nowhere, nor was it, as some may argue, delivered to James Madison from high heavens. The funny thing is that usually when we think about the intellectual inspirations for the Constitution, we think Thomas Hobbes, we think John Locke, we think Montesquieu. But what you're pointing out is, I think, at the same time, more mundane and also more poetic, is that this legalistic way of thinking wasn't just modeled on the philosophical concept of a social contract, but on actual contracts. This was the way that those behemoth companies like the East India Company were ruling over their subjugated colonies at the time. And it was this sort of mercantilistic interaction that ended up being, to some extent, at least in its contractual form, 
reflected in the Constitution. Yeah, and of course, like when we think about the founding fathers and how they shaped the Constitution, they're not self-consciously thinking about corporations and the corporate experience when they drafted the Constitution, right? They're thinking about the ideas of philosophy, of uh, the experience of earlier democracies, uh, right? They are thinking at this at a more philosophical and uh, political theoretic level. Um, uh, but if we think about how in history we know that often the choices that people are presented with are, are a result of um, institutions or decisions or events that happened many, many ages ago, many, many years before, uh, this is uh, very much the case. Their experience with corporate charters and the written charters uh, of the colonial corporations um, sort of normalized for them that idea of a written constitution. It's important to recognize, as you, as you do, that, uh, that their, their own founding fathers right there, when they look back to England, there wasn't a written constitution. Uh, so why did they have one? It wasn't because of necessarily a lot of philosophizing. It was because history had given them one already because of just how the nature of, uh, uh, of, of government was organized around these written texts, these written charters. Uh, so it wasn't a self-conscious choice they're making, but it's nevertheless the, the choices that they're making are shaped by those earlier moments in history. It was interesting as you were talking too about, you know, we have all this emphasis on like the Pilgrim native, but let us not forget Jamestown, let us not forget Virginia. And for me, it was interesting when you're talking because, you know, last year we had a lot of conversation. There was a big conversation about, you know, where do we draw the founding of our country? Do we consider it 1776 or do we consider it, you know, 1619? And I'm, I'm kind of curious to see, you know, to what extent is this idea of corporations and personhood being so integral to our history also into kind of related or or inter integral to the fact that slavery is 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 very inherent to the founding of our nation as well. That's right. Uh, that slavery is very much a part of that story in much the same way that corporations started on our shores very early, as did slavery start on our shores very early, and the two have uh, have been intertwined in, in various ways. Um, there have been periods in American history, for instance, where uh, the issue arose about whether corporations could own slaves um, and. Uh, um, corporations and race. I mean, like anything in American history, it will be um, affected by our uh, racial dynamics and racial dilemmas and racial injustice. And we see this in the corporate context too. Uh, for instance, in the early, in the Jim Crow era, one of the legal issues that arose was, um, could a corporation have a race and a racial identity? Like it's one thing to say the corporations are people. We need it as a legal fiction, as a way so that they can have contract rights and own property in their own name. Um, that's one thing, but uh, it would seem odd to take that to the next level and to say the corporations themselves have a racial identity. Uh, but in the Jim Crow era, like everything, inanimate objects were often labeled, whether it was a black uh, or a colored or, or whether it belonged, uh, quote unquote, to the white. So. Um, and uh, this even affected corporations. Uh, for instance, if a corporation wanted to own property that had a limit that said it couldn't be owned by uh, a colored person, did that mean that uh, the, uh, a corporation that was owned by a colored person couldn't own the property? Or was the corporation a separate legal person that's not capable of having a kind of racial identity? And so uh, the corporation could buy the property. And so that was an issue that arose uh, too. And uh, in some ways, it still arises occasionally, right? We have um, various kinds of um, programs that provide uh, 
preferential access uh, for reasons of affirmative action or whatnot to companies that are uh, minority owned or uh, owned by women. Um, I think these are great policies, but they do pose this very unusual and interesting phenomenon of uh, a business taking on a racial or sexual identity. When we think of the business as generally a separate entity uh, that might not necessarily carry all the characteristics of its owners. So we're going to get to some of the ramifications of this process of over-personification of corporations. But first, take us through some of the changing attitudes towards corporations from the early colonies to the early United States government. Well, sure. I mean, um, you know, like the founders had very conflicted views of corporations themselves. Uh, the founders... Uh, part of their revolt was uh, uh, anger towards uh, the East India Company, which was at the time the biggest, uh, most powerful, richest corporation in the world. Uh, and indeed, we mentioned the Boston Tea Party uh, earlier. Um, uh, the famous Boston Tea Party, of course, was an effort to uh, protest against the East India Company, to throw the East India Company's tea overboard specifically. So obviously, they were very upset about uh, corporations. But the founders uh, were also very much devoted to commercial, a commercial republic. And soon after the founding, uh, a kind of common business corporation uh, became uh, the kind of investment that virtually all the major uh, founders and early American leaders uh, invested in uh, corporations for uh, building uh, improvements, um, uh, building um, uh, turnpikes uh, and canals and whatnot. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, the factories that uh, began to really emerge in the 1830s and whatnot. Uh, and uh, for a long time, the corporation becomes um, uh, a vehicle that is uh, respected, becomes basically the vehicle of choice for business in America. At that same, so we see incredible growth in the use of corporation. It goes everywhere. That's in contrast to England, for instance, where the partnership form becomes much more commonplace as the business organizational form. Um, so we see really the explosion of the corporation in America. Um, and so that shows, I think, a deep-seated appreciation and respect for the corporation as a form. At the same time, there's always this rhetoric of the corporation as being corrupt, as the corporation itself as being too big and powerful and corrupting American politics, or that nonetheless the co corporation was uh, corrupt in other ways uh, in terms of you know, how it had lending practices or how it affected the economy. Um, uh, and that's uh, always been sort of that dual dynamic in America, surprisingly. Um, and that the, corporate, the corporation has changed in various ways, but really since the 1830s, it's been the dominant business form. And nothing's really changed in all those years since. Um, uh, and it's primarily because it's a really good and effective way to uh, pull together some money and to create um, exactly what people who hate corporate personhood when they think about Citizens United um, but to create exactly what uh, the corporate personhood idea, that idea that a corporation is a separate entity that has its own limited liability. You can sue the corporation, take all of its money if the corporation hurts you, but you can't reach beyond the corporation to get at the individual investors beyond what they've invested in. That becomes a really effective tool for economic growth and economic success, and the corporation's really taken over uh, the American economy. So we're still saying that it's corrupt, and we're still worrying about its influence on politics. Um, uh, but uh, there's no doubting the strength and power of corporations in the American economy. There's an interesting point there that I'm not sure how much we'll be able to explore about piercing the corporate veil and how the 
people who the early attempts to personify a corporation came from people who wanted to constrain the power of big companies an interesting reversal but as far as the people who did want to see corporations strengthened to what extent was it motivated by greed and a desire to concentrate power in these monstrous trusts and to what extent was it the acting out of this long-standing American suspicion of the state and its power to just grab your money yeah it's a great question I think it's both I mean it's both in the sense that you know if we go back to the early some of the earliest debates in America were about the corporation right the debate the Uh, between Hamilton and Jefferson that led to the split uh, in the first Washington administration and ultimately the rise of the two competing political parties a political party system that we're still living with all these centuries later um, that was a split in part over uh, whether we would have a comp- uh, cor- uh, we would have a big corporation the Bank of the United States play an influential role in the American economy and Hamilton's view was Uh, was the view of a, of a politician who wanted to see commercial growth, wanted to see the, a lot of corporations and wanted to see the Bank of the United States loan money to a lot of create more and more corporations because not because he was like looking to take over the world through the corporation, but they wanted to create a commercial republic that had a lot of economic growth. And they thought that this was what he thought Hamilton thought that was the way to get it by creating good credit, by creating a manufacturing economy rather than just an agricultural economy. And that required pooling money by having the, you know, the pooled resources of people, that that would be an economically efficient and productive way of organizing the economy. Jefferson was firmly opposed to that. And Jefferson wanted an agrarian economy and didn't oppose the Bank of the United States precisely for the reason that it was going to fund more and more corporations and create a more commercial republic. Uh, and so we've been debating this in many ways. And uh, Jefferson was... Uh, railing against corporate corruption of the Bank of the United States way back in the uh, early 1800s. Um, so uh, this has been, uh, again, a long-standing story in American history uh, about, you know, part of us wants to really promote the corporation, use the corporation because it's such an effective tool for economic growth. Um, uh, and others uh, fear the corporation and see it as suspect. Um, uh, and those two views have been competing for attention in some ways over American history ever since. Uh, the historical conditions change and the debates change, but those two basic perspectives remain. But there's also the other side of it, right? The side concerned with state power. Those are people who are promoting a corporation as a shield for public interest against the state. And those people might tolerate the corporations becoming a little more corrupt as long as they stand as a force against the potential overreaches of government. Yeah, no, there's no doubt that uh, there's a feeling that, uh, you know, if uh, part of the idea of the corporation, like we even go back to the Virginia Company uh, of London, where we talk about uh, one of the, you know, the corporation behind the Jamestown Colony. Of that idea was that the king did not want to finance a colony himself didn't feel like he had the funds to do it right uh, and so the idea was instead to uh, open it up to public investment let the wealthy people of the community invest by shares so that they'll finance it um, and what that does is a kind of a, it's an outsourcing in many ways of government power in various ways and uh, and indeed the Uh, one of the effects is over time you start to see the corporation as itself a limit on government on government power as a protective force against it but we should also recognize that uh, corporations in turn 
will use government power to solidify and cement their own power. And that's partly what we've seen in the story of corporations and trying in their effort to assert and use constitutional rights. Um, that corporations have helped to limit the size of the government, limit state power, uh, especially over them by constitutional rights, gaining some of the rights of people, that then that then has the f effect. The reason why they do it is because it limits the ability of legislators to then regulate those corporations in ways those corporations don't want. Um, and so um, uh, uh, and so we definitely see corporations then using the institutions of government to pursue their own power um, uh, and, and limiting state power uh, is, uh, you know, one of the side effects of, of their own uh, selfish efforts, perhaps. And in a reflection of perhaps the, the more superficial versions of the right-left debates today, it, it basically comes down to which Leviathan do you prefer? Which Leviathan do you think will provide more social goods in the long term? Is it the state or the corporation? But there's rarely been the strict separation that many people would like to believe, right? In the sense that, you know, corporations throughout, for instance, in the 1800s became big and powerful Uh, not by limiting the power of state, but by assuming the power of the state, right? So the railroads get the, effectively the power of eminent domain. This is not an era where the state is right. small by any means. The state is coming in and taking your land. That's a pretty big state. Um, uh, but why? Because they want to build this big project. Uh, and why? And, and who's building the project for? For the investors of the railroad. Um, you know, it's, it's not, the corporations are more than happy to take state power and to take what the state affords them um, uh, and to assume that power and to in many ways expand it uh, and then use it for their own purposes. <laughs> so we've seen that in American history mm -hmm. too. So uh, I don't know that the growth of corporate power long in the long run is a story of uh, government power being minimized. Um, although often, because uh, often it, it's a more intertwined relationship where the corporations use state power and the state gives corporations state power uh, in order to, uh, you know, to accomplish their goals. Yeah, I'm curious, is there is there a legal case that you think of in particular as kind of like the, I don't want to say origin story, because obviously we've just been spending, you know, 30 minutes talking about different types of origins, but that uh, one legal case that you kind of see as like the the place where you say, okay, this is where the precedent was really first established for the idea of corporate corporations as persons. Absolutely. We, I was really shocked when I went back to look at the, to try to find this out. Because look, you know, in law schools today, you learn about civil rights, women's rights, immigrants' rights, LGBTQ rights, states' rights. You know what you never learn about is corporate rights. And so the story of corporate rights and how they emerged and led to ultimately the Citizens United um uh was really sort of uh you know you had to really kind of do some digging and i was shocked when i found out that the first supreme court case to ask whether a corporation was protected by the constitution was decided all the way back in 1809 right so this is very soon after the founding right within a few decades two decades this is still the marshall court this is the marshall court this is 1809 right we're, we're talking uh you know we're talking early presidents at this point right um and Uh, to put that in some perspective, the first Supreme Court case on the rights of women under the Constitution wasn't heard in the Supreme Court until 1873. And the first Supreme Court case on the rights of African Americans uh, uh, under the Constitution wasn't heard by the Supreme Court 
until 1857. So that's all, those are about a half century after. And they lost. Right. Uh, oh, and yeah, that's true. And for the, those cases, the women and the minorities lost. Wow. The corporate case was in 1809, and the corporation won its case. <laughs> so uh, that's a case called the uh, Bank of the United States versus DeVoe. You won't find it in any constitutional law casebook that you'll find, or even histories of the period don't really m- mention it much at all. Um, but it was really a landmark case. It dealt with this question about the Bank of the United States and whether uh, that was uh, Hamilton's creation, the bank. Uh, And one of the questions that uh, arose, because Jeffersonians were trying to put the bank out of business, um, and they, uh, in Georgia, uh, they imposed a tax on this federal bank as a way of saying, you can't operate in Savannah, Georgia, where it had a branch, Uh, and then actually went and seized the money that the bank had. Um, uh, as from a, a tax collector, seized the money. And so the bank sued and wanted to sue in federal court. And uh, the way you get to federal court under the Constitution uh, is if two people from different states sue each other, they can sue each other if they want in federal court. Um, and uh, the corporation said, well, we're not a member, we don't live in Georgia, you know, we're the Bank of the United States, uh, we're headquartered in Philadelphia, we're going to sue in federal court against this tax collector uh, in Georgia and get our money back. And so the big question was whether they fit under that rule under the Constitution that people from different states can sue in federal court. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court Bank of the United States uh, won that case. Uh, the Marshall Court, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, writing the opinion for the court, held that uh, uh, corporations were protected by this provision of uh, uh, the Constitution. By the way, it was this very same provision of the Constitution that was at issue in the legendary, or I should say notorious, Dred Scott case, that first time the Supreme Court heard a case on the rights of African Americans in 1857. When the Supreme Court said that um, uh, that African Americans had no rights under the Constitution, the very issue under consideration was whether the African American man, in that case Dred Scott, could sue in federal court against a citizen of another state, the person who was claiming to own him. Uh, and, uh, and the court in that case said, no, you can't sue in federal court. You have no rights. The white man is bound to respect, but corporations did the legal fiction of a corporation had rights. According to the Supreme court, a black person escaping slavery did not a corporation was a person. A slave was not exactly, exactly. That is so perfectly American history. So, yeah, that's a case, Bank of the United States versus DeVoe. That was an 1809 case. That was a major case. And, um, and then the, the, the corporate rights movement, though, really, really takes off uh, after the Civil War, uh, when the Southern Pacific Railroad launches a remarkable series of test cases to try to win the rights of the freedmen under the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment was passed right after the Civil War to guarantee equal rights uh, to the newly freed slaves. And the Southern Pacific Railroad wanted to use those provi- that provision of the Constitution to win rights for the railroad, for the corporation, so that it could fight against uh, state taxes that they didn't want to pay. Uh, and Wait, so, why why the Fourteenth Amendment specifically was that? They felt like that was the the, the best stra- strategic route for them to 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 get more rights. Well, uh, they had been fighting for some some against state regulation and state taxes uh, for, on a variety of different constitutional grounds for years, um, but often losing in the right before the period before the Civil War. But they launched a renewed attack after the 14th Amendment was adopted. And part of the reason might have been they had the assistance of 
their lawyer, the lawyer, main lawyer for the Southern Pacific Railroad was a man named Roscoe Conkling. And Roscoe Conkling, uh, his name is kind of, we might not think of him today uh, offhand, but uh, he was uh, the leader of the Republican Party and considered one of the most important men in Washington uh, for about 20 years after the Civil War. Um, and uh, Conkling, after he left Congress, became a lawyer for the Southern Pacific Railroad. And um, and he represented them in this in a in these series of test cases challenging the California state tax that they've imposed on railroads under the Fourteenth Amendment as a violation of the corporation's Fourteenth uh, Amendment rights to equal protection of the laws. Um, uh, uh, part of the reason why they use the Fourteenth Amendment is, is that uh, the corp corporations had to pay this special kind of tax, but individuals did not have to pay it. And so the corporation was saying that's denying us equality or equal treatment under the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and, uh, uh, and, but Conkling's a guy and, and Conkling makes, goes to the Supreme Court and he says to the justices that, uh, that the drafters of the 14th amendment intended to protect not only the freedmen, but also to protect corporations from oppressive state laws. And while this seems like a rather audacious argument for someone to make, uh, Conkling was unusually well suited to make it. Um, Conkling himself was thought to be a, a peer by the justices. He had himself been nominated to the Supreme Court and even confirmed by the Senate to serve on the Supreme Court uh, just the year, the same year, earlier the same year that he appeared before the Supreme Court on behalf of the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, to claim 14th Amendment rights. Um, he uh, refused to serve. I think he was basically making too much money as a lawyer for the railroad. Um, and he claimed as much that he said he couldn't afford to be a Supreme Court justice. Um, and he but remains to this day, by the way, odd historical fact, uh, Roscoe Conklin remains to this day, the last person to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after having won confirmation. Um, uh, but Conklin, um, uh, so Conklin was thought of as a peer by the justices, right? This is a guy who had been confirmed to be among them, uh, to be a justice. Um, and not only that, when it came to talking about the intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment, well, Conkling himself was one of the framers. He himself had served on the drafting committee in Congress that had written the 14th Amendment. And so when he was saying that the, the drafters of the 14th Amendment intended to protect corporations, he was talking about his own personal experience. He was one of the drafters. So he had unusual credibility here. And, um, uh, and, and the Supreme Court ultimately... Uh, uh, they never ultimately ruled in Roscoe Conklin. Now, it turns out Roscoe Conklin, by the way, we now know Roscoe Conklin lied to the justices in the Supreme Court. There's nothing in the drafting history that suggests that the framers were really uh, even thought about uh, protecting uh, corporations. Uh, and a close look at Conklin's arguments shows his sleight of hand at every turn. Um, he really misled the justices. And I suspect ultimately the justices did discover this in looking back to the historical record themselves. Um, but nonetheless, in a case just a couple years later, the Supreme Court adopted Conkling's argument and said in another case brought by the Southern Pacific Railroad, another one of its test cases, the corporations were protected uh, uh, by, effectively by the 14th Amendment and by the, uh, by the 14th Amendment uh, and could use the 14th Amendment to strike down state laws. And in the next 30 years after that case or 25 years after that case, the Supreme Court struck down many, many laws uh, in a period of its history known as the Lochner era, where it struck down a lot of regulation of business, uh, in part because corporations were said to have 14th Amendment rights. So, And every time a corporation wanted to get a regulation revoked, would they point to that case as precedent? 
Would they go on invoking the 14th Amendment as justification? Absolutely. Uh, and indeed, that worked. That's how the law works. You, once you set a precedent, the precedent answers that question. And so corporations in the next you know, uh, 25, 30 years after that really came to the Supreme Court with so many cases asserting constitutional rights. Um, uh, there were um, uh, uh, cases brought challenging any, all sorts of different kinds of business regulation. And it's interesting, in this period, by the way, in the Lochner period, Lochner era, which is roughly said to last between sort of the 1890s and 1937 and the New Deal kind of era, um, uh, that Lochner era uh, was one in which uh, the court read the Constitution very broadly to strike down numerous forms of business regulation. Um, uh, But uh, that same Supreme Court read the 14th Amendment, the same key constitutional provision narrowly in the context of African-Americans, the intended beneficiaries of the 14th Amendment, uh, upholding separate but equal. Right. Plessy versus Ferguson is happening at the same time. Yeah, that's the separate but equal case. Plessy against Ferguson is decided in the 1890s, uh, just as the court's expanding the rights of corporations, the Supreme Court was limiting uh, and diminishing the rights of African-Americans. And, and that's part of that story of America. Because we think of the Supreme Court as really the bulwark for the protection of vulnerable minorities. But it's really been a bulwark for the protection of often the most powerful corporations and most elite interests um, against uh, the interests of uh, the minorities. Can you talk a little bit about Justice Field? Justice Stephen Field, he is one of those characters who really shone through the book. I'd love to dwell on him for a little bit. Well, Justice uh, Stephen Field was one of the most colorful justices ever uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, he was appointed by Abraham Lincoln and served into, uh, up until the 1890s. Um, he was the first uh, Supreme Court justice from California, from the Wild West. And, and befitting, uh, befittingly, he was rumored to always carry a gun with him, even under his robe. Uh, and Field was uh, the only Supreme Court justice in all of American history who was ever arrested for a crime while they were a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and in Field's case, the crime was murder. Uh, and uh, he was uh, innocent uh, in the end. Uh, it was self-defense, it turns out. Uh, but he was arrested for murder. And uh, uh, he, he was found yeah, innocent. Well, he was ultimately released. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a major controversy at the time. But... Uh, um, but it's just a testament to the kind of passions he brought uh, to bear. And he was a very, very strong-willed justice who believed that, so he feared socialism, which was rising in Europe, and he feared that uh, he needed to pr- read the Constitution vigorously to protect American capitalism. Uh, and, and do I remember correctly, he was also strong in social Darwinism? He was steeped in those proto-eugenicist, uh, or late 19th century, early 20th century modes of thinking. Yeah, I mean, uh, as it pertains to corporations, what was interesting was his, his willingness to, uh, to do almost anything, uh, sort of survival, uh, corporate rights by survival of the fittest in some ways. Um, he was very committed to the idea of the Southern Pacific Railroad's test cases and expanding the 14th Amendment rights of corporations. In fact, he had, uh, in uh, behavior we would think of as highly unethical today, he had consulted with the Southern Pacific Railroad while they were bringing their litigation had given a shared confidential memorandum of the justices with the Southern Pacific Railroad's lawyers. Um, And uh, so he uh, didn't respect the ethical boundaries that we would demand today of a Supreme Court justice. 
Um, and indeed, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that the Supreme Court didn't rule right away on Roscoe Conkling's case. In fact, Conkling's case sat in the Supreme Court for years and then ultimately was dismissed until the Supreme Court decided to hear uh, another one of the Southern Pacific Railroad's test cases. And, and uh, it was um, uh, it was Stephen Field who, uh, um, who clearly and flatly misstated what the law was to uh, establish and affirm the rights of business corporations under the 14th Amendment. Um, and uh, even contrary, going contrary to what he had said in an opinion just a couple of years earlier about the state of the law. So he clearly knew that the law was different, but he insisted the corporations uh, had rights under the 14th Amendment. And uh uh, and the wait, never wait, 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 let's, let's stay on this point for a second. It's, it's kind of a big deal, right? We're talking about the history of how corporations came to be understood legally as people. And one of the linchpin moments is a Supreme Court justice intentionally misreading a previous court decision in order to go behind the backs of his fellow justices and just pour into the law the idea of corporate personhood, which he believed would strengthen corporations. It's really a, re a remarkable moment that uh, Justice, uh, Justice Field uh, clearly misinterprets um, uh, the court's opinion in uh, one of these Southern Pacific Railroad cases and what the court had decided. Um, what had happened was, is that the court in the Southern Pacific Railroad case had formally said, we're not addressing the constitutional rights of corporations. Um, and yet the court reporter, um, the, the bureaucrat, effectively, who publishes the Supreme Court's opinions in the official United States reports and in the U.S. volumes, um, uh, a guy by the name of J.C. Bancroft Davis, writes an inaccurate summary of the case where he starts out the summary of the case that is right there in the official version. The summary says the court held that corporations were persons under the 14th Amendment. Uh, in the opinion itself, the justices say, no, no, we're not reaching that question. We don't need to reach that question in this case. Uh, and so we're not going to speak to it at all. Uh, causing Justice Field to write a dissenting opinion in that case or a concurring opinion, really, where he says, you know, uh, I think that the Supreme Court should hear this decide this important constitutional question, the corporations of America deserve to know whether they're protected by the, the Constitution, whether the businessmen of America are protected in their rights. Um, uh, and, and then uh, a couple of years later, just another couple of years later, in another case where a similar issue is presented, um, but the court doesn't need to decide it, um, Justice Field drops in the opinion a line. Well, as we held in the Southern Pacific Railroad case, corporations are protected by the 14th Amendment something that the majority in that case clearly did not hold and said that they were not holding and that he had complained himself about the fact that they weren't holding that. Right. And let's be clear just how wild this is for the sake of our listeners who don't necessarily care about legal precedent. A Supreme Court's decision is effectively the law of the land, right? Which is why sometimes Supreme Court justices decide to avoid making judgments on certain issues that come before them because they don't want it to become precedent. Maybe they think it's an issue that the lower courts need to squabble in between themselves to decide. Maybe they think they should kick it back to Congress. But either way, the Supreme Court has the prerogative to say, none of our business, figure it out yourselves. 
And we've actually been seeing this a lot in the past couple of years, as many cases with impact on the executive branch came before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, we're going to reach a very narrow decision in this case, but we're not going to weigh in on a whole host of other problems implied in this very motion. So our decision should be seen as very narrow and does not serve as precedent for, for future actions. And this is exactly what happened with the field court. They had this big question implied in one of their cases about whether or not corporations are legally people, whether they have rights. And the court decided to answer the immediate question of the case while skirting the bigger question of whether corporations are people. But then it gets cheated back into precedent by a rogue Supreme Court justice who relied in bad faith on the poor summary of the case made by an incompetent clerk in order to just single-handedly decide on this matter. He unilaterally subverted the decision of his eight fellow justices in order to get his own way with the law. So where people are cynical about Supreme Court justices manipulating words to reach their own political ends, this is a whole other level. So true. And, you know, Field was able to get away with his sleight of hand, um, uh, in part because of the way opinions were published at the time. At the time, uh, it was not always the case that justices would share drafts of their opinions with the other justices in advance of publishing them. The norm was that the justices would vote, and then a justice was assigned to write the opinion, and the justice would generally do so, um, uh, sometimes seeking the comments of others, other times not. Uh, in fact, you remember back then, uh, we're talking in the 1880s, the Supreme Court doesn't even have a building, right? They don't have their own Supreme Court building. Their courtroom is in the office, uh, in the downstairs of the Capitol building, in the former old, uh, old Senate chamber. Um, and uh, they don't even uh, work together next to, they all work out of their home offices at the time. So it was a very different time. And he was also able to get away with it in part because what Fields said about the Constitution did reflect uh, sort of uh, the spirit of the Supreme Court that was heading into this Lochner era that begins like uh, in the 1890s, just a few years after this, you know, he's writing these cases in the 1880s and does this sleight of hand in the late 1880s. And as I mentioned, the Lochner era, the Supreme Court broadly read the Constitution to strike down laws uh, like federal child labor laws, zoning laws, and minimum wage laws. That's not simply because there was a sleight of hand by field. It's because that's where the court is. That's the, where, uh, whose interest the court is most interested in protecting. Uh, and Fields uh, gets away with it uh, in part for that reason. Um, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, that same court uh, just denies what is the Constitution, the, the, the amendment uh, that was really meant for the African-Americans. Right. And this brings me to another question uh, about the way you told the story in the book. It's a little more historiographical. You, you, you tell the narrative through a number of big characters like Justice Field, like Daniel Webster, the charismatic lawyer from the founding Webster, era. Right. Well, actually, we didn't get into Daniel Webster at all, but he was in the original Bank of America case. And and. To take your description of it, he basically carried that case on his force as an orator, uh, on his charisma. So that's already one precedent that hinges on the power of an individual. And then you have Field, who connives the justice system, at least in part thanks to his smart-slash-underhanded practices. So how much of the story of ever-expending corporate power in America 
is due to individual machinations and how much of it is is broader trends in the legal and political community well uh you know first of all i might um uh, just challenge the premises that those two things are so fundamentally different or that one would could ever operate without the other operating. absolutely you know you can't get away with your with field can't get away with his sleight of hand and his nefarious uh is southern pacific railroads nefarious arguments uh fraudulent arguments about the meaning of the constitution unless there's a larger structures uh, and institutions in place uh and political forces uh that are accepting of that idea um and uh, uh so obviously you have to have uh, the the environment in place uh, to accept those things. Uh, and, and so individual machinations, they tell the best stories, uh, of course, but, um, but it's always larger structural forces as well that are happening. Um, but uh, part of the things that uh, we see, especially in the law, individuals uh, and individual personalities can often make a big difference because, you know, in the Supreme Court, you have a vote of just a very small number of people. So a very strong will justice um, uh, who has a strong feeling about corporate rights can really make a difference by persuading one or two other people. And all of a sudden you've got a majority that fundamentally changes American law. Do those change, will those changes last if those changes are out of sync with larger structures in American politics? Probably not. But one of the stories, at least I sort of saw, uh, sought to tell in We the Corporations, uh, which does focus on, on these uh, great moments and great lawyers and, uh, and powerful personalities and turning points, um, is that often Supreme Court cases are at least uh, markers, markers of incredible moments of growth of corporate power. And what I wanted to show in my book was, you know, we think about corporate power often in terms of corporate influence over legislatures or elected officials or over referendum processes or something like that, public policy and lobbying. But I wanted to show how corporations have also used the Constitution to expand their power. And when they lose in the legislature, to use the Constitution to fight against those rights. Um, and their individual decision-making does make some difference, right? You have to have people to bring the arguments. You have to have justices that are willing to accept those arguments. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, if you didn't have uh, good lawyers, one, I do think that the fact that corporations had good lawyers all these years mm. does help them win cases. Um, right. That, uh, you know, look, any good civil rights movement needs excellent lawyers to go in uh, and uh, bring the lawsuits, devise the novel legal theories and persuade the justices. Um, think of Thurgood Marshall uh, uh, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, uh, corporate rights were no exception. Uh, and uh, we, among those who argued for court constitutional rights for corporations over the course of American history were Daniel Webster, right, considered one of the greatest advocates ever and who argued more than 200 Supreme Court cases. People like John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. Uh, and uh, today it's Ted Olson arguing Citizens United, the dean of today's elite Supreme Court bar. Uh, these are important players. And I think that their voice um, does at least crystallize moments in history uh, even if they're being propelled and pushed by larger structural forces. I just want to add, for the record, my favorite anecdote about Daniel Webster, who, aside from just being this rakish lawyer who stunned people with his charisma and rhetoric, had, like you said, he had an, a record amount of cases. But the, the reasoning behind it is that he would have gone bankrupt if he didn't. He just couldn't afford to retire. He had to keep trying cases until he died. 
because it kept burning his money on, I guess, whiskey or whatever aristocrats of the time squandered their wealth on? It's really amazing. I mean, Daniel Webster was really one of the most legendary lawyers in American history. And uh, he was known as the defender of the Constitution. Uh, He argued hundreds of Supreme Mm -hmm. Court cases at a time when the Constitution was first being interpreted. So uh, his voice was very well respected. I say in the book that he could have been known as the defender of the corporation because so many of his cases were about representing businesses and business elites and corporations in the courts fighting against uh, regulation in various ways. And we think about personalities, I think personalities can matter. Uh, Webster had a very strong uh, friendship and relationship with John Marshall, and the Marshall Court ruled consistently in favor of the rights of corporations, like in that 1809 case that we talked about earlier with the Bank of the United States. Um, When the Supreme Court turned hands and uh, uh, Roger Taney led the Supreme Court, he had a major feud with Daniel Webster. They hated each other. Uh, and uh, Tawney was happy to rule against Webster's cases in any chance he, ca- he could. Now, part of that was because they had different ideologies about how to think about corporations and how to think about government regulation of them. Um, uh, but personalities matter, uh, I think, as well. And, and, you know, the practice in history over the past few decades has been to shift away from paying too much attention to the influence of big personalities. But I think very recent history has shown us just how much the individual can matter and even potentially drastically change the course of history. Uh, I want to get your take on where we're at today. I mean, how has our, it could be our cultural, political relationship with corporations. Like, what, At what stage are we in the evolution of this history, I guess I would say today? Right. And maybe take us there through Citizens United and, and the more recent cases about uh, corporate personhood. Sure. Um, so Citizens United was, in many reasons, the reason I wrote my book, because in 2010, the Supreme Court in that case held that corporations have the same free speech rights uh, as you and me and could spend unlimited amounts of money on election advertisements. Uh, don't worry, they said you and I can spend unlimited amounts of money on election advertisements too, but we might not have the funds that the corporations have. Um, and so I was really interested in this question of like, how do corporations get their First Amendment rights? What, what's the history and what's that story? Um, uh, And what I found was that Citizens United was really the capstone of a 200-year battle by business corporations to win uh, a large share of the rights that we think is belonging to individuals under the Constitution. Um, uh, And that uh, Citizens United was revolutionary in some ways. Um, uh, It was revolutionary in that the court had never before said that corporations had uh, that same free speech right to influence elections for candidates the way that you and I have. Uh, and so that was a meaningful change. And indeed, the court, the issue had come up in the courts previously, uh, literally 100 years before Citizens United, back in uh, the 19-teens. Uh, corporations challenged the earliest campaign finance laws, which were bans on corporate contributions to candidates. Uh, and corporations challenged those laws as a violation of the First, the first Amendment. And at the time, and this is even in the Lochner era when the court was very business friendly, the courts nonetheless turned away those challenges, saying that corporations don't have political speech rights. The corporations are for the economy. They're not for, uh, shouldn't be involved in politics. Um, And so in that way, Citizens United was revolutionary. What was not revolutionary was the idea that corporations were people, that corporations had rights under the Constitution, at least some. Uh, like property rights and uh, rights of equal protection, and that they had used those rights um, uh, for many, many, many uh, years to fight off regulation and to solidify their power. 
And Citizens United very much just seems like the, the, the capstone of that larger uh, story. Uh, it's an important case, um, um, but it is uh, less revolutionary, uh, perhaps, than many people might suspect. So to go back to Vanessa's question, where does it leave us today? Should we start treating corporations as people? Should we be taking them out for a beer? Should we be marching in the streets to defend their civil rights? Well, I think the future of corporate rights is rosy. Oh, really? Uh, I think that the Supreme Court is likely to, uh, uh, has been recently expanding the rights of corporations. Uh, we mentioned Citizens United. Uh, we could also talk about the Hobby Lobby case where the Supreme Court held that corporations have religious freedom under a federal statute. Uh, and as a result, uh, was entitled to an exemption from a requirement that they provide birth control for their employees. The corporation claimed that that violated the corporation's religious beliefs. Um, and uh, we're also seeing that issue arise as a big issue in the LGBTQ rights area, where corporations like Masterpiece Cake Shop, a bakery, uh, and other, uh, other corporations and businesses that provide wedding services are refusing to provide those services for same-sex couples despite laws in place in some states that say you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. And these companies are saying that they have a religious freedom under the First Amendment uh, to discriminate against LGBT people because that reflects the corporation's religious beliefs when we really mean the owners of the corporation's religious beliefs. Mm. Um, but remember, corporate personhood is supposed to mean that the the corporation is a separate legal entity from the underlying owner. And that's why the owner is not liable for the corporation's debts. If you slip and fall in Hobby Lobby today and sue the Green family that owns it, the Green family will say, wait, you, we're separate legal entities. You can't sue me. You have to sue the company. Um, but yet here, the, the Green family is now imposing their religion on the company and, treat, and uh, affecting its customers and its employees based on the religious beliefs of that, of that uh, corporation. Um, and so we're seeing a growth in corporate rights. I think corporate religious rights are going to grow in, in the future. We're also seeing corporations use First Amendment rights of commercial speech expansively to fight off regulation of, uh, say, tobacco labeling and other kinds of mandatory labeling and uh, warning requirements uh, on behalf of consumers. We're seeing uh, corporations challenge those laws. Um, currently, uh, I recently saw a statistic that virtually half of all First Amendment cases brought in the federal courts now are brought by corporations and trade associations that represent businesses uh, to fight off regulation of various sorts. So that's really, we're seeing the corporations have really uh, taken over the First Amendment and, uh, and don't seem to be uh, ready to, to stop anytime soon. So um, is there a counter movement? And I don't mean the populist Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren camp. I mean, are there people from, from more entrenched in, in legal orthodoxy uh, who, who are trying to append this trend? Are there young briars there fighting in the trenches? There is a counter movement. Uh, there are justices on the Supreme Court. All three of the liberal justices currently on the Supreme Court, Breyer, Sotomayor, uh, and Kagan, uh, have all come out uh, uh, for uh, restricting or reducing the rights of corporations, at least in the context of political speech and in the context of uh, religious freedom. Um, there's also a popular movement, a mobilized movement to amend the Constitution, to add a 28th Amendment to the Constitution that would um, either overturn Citizens United in particular, or uh, some proposals would say that corporations are not people and have no rights under the Constitution whatsoever. Um, 
Uh, so that's uh, one possible way in which this could go. Uh, obviously, amending the Constitution is incredibly difficult. Um, the more likely uh, way of changing the Constitution's approach to corporations would be through change in membership of the Supreme Court so that the court would have just a different view of what, corp uh, what rights are protected uh, under the Constitution for business corporations. I think it's actually a situation where the amendment idea is kind of uh, goes too far. I don't think we should take property rights away from corporations. I don't think the government should be able to swoop in and take, Google, take Google's beautiful campus that they've built and say, well, we're just going to take this for our purposes and we don't have to pay you a dime because you don't have any rights under the Constitution. Um, that would seem wrong. It would seem wrong if the, uh, the, uh, uh, if the government could sweep in and say, Apple, you have to give us the names of all of your customers and give us all of your privacy data because you don't have any rights under the Constitution. You don't have any due process rights that protect you and give you a right to access to the court. You don't have any property rights. So this can be taken by the public for public purposes. I think that would go too far. Uh, so I don't think we should eliminate all corporate rights. The New York Times is a corporation. We don't want to take away its right of free press. Um, but we do want to scale back the rights of corporations when it comes to politics and I think religious freedom as well. Okay, so final question. When I read the, the first chapter of your book, it, it really struck me how far back the relationship, the love story between America and the corporation goes, the, the story of mutual influence. And like I said, it's both mundane and poetic. How those ideas that started from a place of expediency, like a, a king, like you mentioned, who uh, just believed it would be more efficient to let the, the people in the colonies uh, govern themselves, have, have some degree of autonomy, evolved into this lofty ideal of what we see today as a liberal modern democracy, whether or not we actually live up to it. And your book also, while rife with cynicism, also has room for the fact that a lot of the people who promoted these ideas of corporate personhood weren't necessarily guided by the, the most uh, sinister desire to, to uh, become a, 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 a monopoly and eradicate all competition and rule the world. At least some of the people were guided by a, a real belief in cooperative potential and entrepreneurial potential. So given how bleak everything else feels right now. I want to ask you, is there something that makes you optimistic about the current state of corporate personhood? Oh, look, I mean, I think that there is a, look, this very deep-seated part of the American ideology is to limit the state, right? We talked earlier about that idea of limiting the state, and part of the way in which you might limit the state is by saying the state doesn't have the power to regulate business very much. Most of what the state wants to do um, for the most part, is regulate business. That's they take money. Things. They raise taxes. Right. It raise taxes, right, uh, and, you know, to support police and security and things like that. Um, and, you know, it, does, it doesn't regulate individuals all that much. It regulates mostly businesses uh, and uh, what kind of commercial activities those businesses can engage in and how they can engage in those activities. So this has always been a place where, we, where the idea of uh, by limiting the state and limiting the state's authority to regulate, uh, you, you end up uh, very much protecting business and uh, business, uh, uh, business interests. Um, but, you know, uh, it's, uh, when we think about, uh, you know, going all the way back to the earliest days um, uh, and the influence of corporations on American, uh, the American Constitution, it's really uh, to show that there uh, is a, a relationship that uh, while Citizens United does bother us for a variety of reasons, 
um, it, it really opens a window into the deep intertwined relationship between corporations and the Constitution. And one of the things I found that was so interesting in my book and my research was that corporations were often constitutional innovators, mm. that over the course of American history, corporations, by seeking rights for them, have actually changed and expanded the rights that individuals have in some instances. Corporations were behind some of the earliest cases behind the contract clause, an early provision of the Constitution that had a lot more meaning than it does today. Corporations were behind some of the earliest um, cases uh, uh, on unreasonable searches and seizures, because those searches and seizures that were early on were mostly against businesses, or at least the ones that caused the lawsuits. Um, that corporations were behind the key precedents that gave rise to the very first um, uh, precedents uh, saying that uh, there was a freedom of press under the, under the First Amendment. Um, that was brought by Louisiana business corporations, newspaper corporations that were fighting against the censorship of Huey Long, who, uh, you know, many, many decades, uh, almost a century before Donald Trump was complaining about fake news uh, and imposed a tax on the newspaper corporations. So corporations have often been innovators, first movers. In the way that corporations are often first movers in the economy, they've also been first movers in the Constitution. And in many ways, they've abused the Constitution for the purposes of capital and against the public interest. Uh, but the relationship, again, is much more profound and complicated and multifaceted uh, than, uh, than uh, I ever imagined uh, when Citizens United was uh, first handed down. Uh, that's exactly the tone of ambiguity that I wanted to end on. Adam Winkler, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple. It really helps a lot. Share with your friends and enemies and come argue with us. Till next time, stay sane. Oh, and by the way, before you go, if you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love to recommend to you friend of the pod, Don Carpenter's podcast, What Does It Profit? It's a really interesting concept. She brings brilliant guests from the business world. Adam Winkler actually was one of them. And she tries to figure out whether or not corporations can actually do good in the world. Big question. Actually, it's one which we invited her on our show to convince us of. I, I have my views and we, we get into an interesting argument. We'll share it with you soon. But if you're looking to expand your listening menu, then she's definitely worth your time. Check her out. What does it profit? Cheers.